chapter number 42, I do want to let you know that if you're going to miss a service, don't miss next Wednesday. Next Wednesday, and I'm going to tell you why, I'll be gone. So you don't want to miss next Wednesday, I'll be gone. I don't even know who's preaching, and to be honest, I really don't care who's preaching. Brother Ethan Clem is going to be leading the music for us, and so you don't want to miss that service, and here's why. Uh, We just heard Miss Isabel sing a song, we just heard Miss Isabel play the piano, and I think that we ought to boast in the fact that our young people are wanting to use their talents for the Lord. And uh, we heard a great presentation on a Sunday night about our young people and what the Lord is doing. And I got opportunity to pray with Brother Ethan. I don't, oh, there you are, Brother Ethan. And uh, the Lord's been working on his heart at summer camp, believes that the Lord's calling him into music ministry. So give him someone to lead next Wednesday. If you're going to miss a service, don't miss next week. Let's be here and let's be an encouragement to him and let's sing. Sing for him better than you sing for me, all right, next week. That'll be a blessing to you. Genesis chapter number 42, last week. We went over the first uh, 24 verses of Genesis chapter number uh, 42, and this week we will actually cover the rest of this passage as well as all of Genesis chapter number 43. And so begin reading with me in Genesis chapter number 42, verse number 25, and we will just read down to the end of the passage, and again, we will go over the rest of Genesis chapter number 43 as we progress through this lesson. Verse number 25 says... Then Joseph commanded to fill their sacks with corn and to restore every man's money into his sack and to give them provision for the way, and thus did he unto them. And they laded their asses with the corn and departed thence. And as one of them opened his sack to give his ass uh, uh, provender in the inn, he espied his money, for behold, it was in his sack's mouth." And he said unto his brethren, My money is restored, and lo, it is even in my sack. And their hearts filled them, excuse me, and their hearts failed them, and they were afraid, saying one to another, What is it, oh, excuse me, what is this that God hath done unto us? Verse number 29, And they came unto Jacob their father, unto the land of Canaan, and told him all that befell them, saying, The man who is the Lord of the land spake roughly to us and took us for spies of the country. And we said unto him, We are true men, we are no spies. We be twelve brethren, sons of uh, our father, one is not, and the youngest uh, this day is with our father in the land of Canaan. And the men, excuse me, and the man, the Lord of the country, said unto us, Hereby shall I know that ye are true men. Leave one of your brethren here with me and take food for the famine. Of your household and be gone. And bring your youngest brother unto me, then shall I know that ye are no spies, but that ye are true men. So will I deliver your brother, and ye shall traffic in the land. And it came to pass, as they emptied their sacks, that behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when both they and their fathers saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob their father said unto them, Me have ye bereaved of my children, Joseph is not, and Simeon is not, and ye will take Benjamin away? All these things are against me. And Reuben spake unto his father, saying, Slay my two sons, if I bring him not to thee, deliver him unto my hand, and I will bring him to thee again. Verse 38, And he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is left alone, that is Simeon, If mischief befall him by the way in which ye go, then shall ye bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to the grave. 
Again, we'll go over the rest of the passage as we progress through this lesson. But for just a moment tonight, I'd like to talk to you about this subject in light of Genesis 42 and Genesis chapter number 43. We've got to go back. We've got to go back. Let's say a word of prayer and we'll begin. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd be with us tonight. Uh, Lord, Just I pray that you'd empty myself uh, of myself, Lord, and that you'd fill me with your, peer, uh, your spirit. Lord, I need your power tonight as I preach. I pray that you'd be with me. Lord, I'm so thankful for the opportunity to go through this series. And again, as I've said every week, you've spoken to me first before you've spoken to any of these people. Thank you for that. Lord, we don't take your word lightly. We don't take your spirit lightly. And we are thankful that we can come in the middle of a week and, Lord, be taught the word of God. And, Lord, you, your spirit speaks to us in an intimate way. And, and, and you instigate change in our lives, Lord, based off of your word. So I pray that that's what people would see tonight, your word. Lord, that your word would be lifted up in the truth that you've been trying to get across this whole entire uh, time, these past 13 weeks. Lord, I pray that it would become real to us tonight and that you'd bring us to a position not where we would just know the truth, but we would respond. I pray that you'd be with us tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for reading with me. I got a couple of questions that I'd like to ask you by way of introduction tonight. First question, it's very simple. How many of you have children? You have children, or if you've had children, maybe they're grown or they're out of the house, but you have children. How many of you have multiple children? Okay, multiple children. All right, so now I, the reason I ask those questions is because I need, uh, I, I got to figure out how I'm going to phrase this uh, without hurting anybody's feelings. But those of you with multiple children, how many of you have a child, um, how many of you have that child, you already raised your hand, you know. How many of you have that child in which you've realized through experience that this child is going to require a little bit more attention, um, a little bit more uh, instruction, a little bit more uh, attention to detail? Maybe this child is the kind of child in which you're going to give them instruction, you're going to allow them to participate in the task, and then you know you're going to have to go back and reiterate the instructions and give it to them several times before they get it. That was a lot, a mouthful, but how many of you have that child? You know what I'm talking about. So I, I just have the one. I, again, I, I reference him all the time, but I just have the one child, Dax, and he's actually going to be two years old in just about two weeks, and I'm excited about that. But I believe that the Lord has blessed me with that child already in my first child. I'm praying that this is the child that is going to be like that, and my other children will be a lot more uh, disciplined and obedient, but nonetheless... <laughs> All you older parents are like, oh yeah, just wait, you'll see, you'll have multiple children like that. How many of you, every child is like that in your family? Okay. Uh, Dax is definitely that child for me, and, and uh, without giving a great detail and, and, and illustration, I'll just tell you, I've realized uh, that he's going to take a certain amount of patience and a certain amount of additional instructions. You say he's only two. I understand he's only two years old, but when Dax wants to do the will of the Father, he will do the will of the Father. But when he doesn't, that's when the extra instruction and the discipline has to come into play. And it's scary, parents help me. It is scary when I have knelt down on Dax's level and I have said words that I've heard my father say to me. It is a very humbling experience. Matter of fact, the more that, uh, the longer I am a father, it's only been two years, the wiser my father becomes in my eyes. I mean, I, I'm serious. I could go on and I could go on about the things that I've said, and he's only two. I cannot even begin to imagine what he's going to be like when he's 12 and 13 and 14. But nonetheless, uh, we all have children like that. I have my son. He's like that. The child who requires a little bit more correction, a little bit more instruction, patience, grace, uh, you know it's going to take him a while to get it. You know what I'm talking about? Hey. Was that Brother Flath? Brother Flath? We're going to have a... 
We're going to come to have a come to Jesus meeting later. But <laughs> when we think of the lives of Joseph's brothers, we've got 12 sons. We've got Joseph, which he exits the scene when he's 17. We've got Benjamin, who's still at home with dad. When it comes to the 10 other brothers, could we not agree that they all fell into that demographic? They're the kind of children that are going to take some time, some patience, some additional instruction in order for them to get it. How long? Over 20 years long. Matter of fact, some even say that it's been longer than 20 years. Some say it's pushing more like 25 years. And the sons of Jacob still have not gotten the picture. Their calloused hearts have overcome them. They've sold Joseph into slavery. And for 20 years, they've been, I mean, God has been reiterating and reiterating. And he has displayed patience and he's displayed grace. He's given this instruction time and time again. And they still have not gotten it yet. In Genesis chapter number 42, after 20 long years have passed since they sell Joseph into slavery, the brothers of Joseph, again, they thought the worst of Joseph. We talked about this last week, but they thought that Joseph surely was dead. Surely Joseph has passed from the scene. It's been over 20 years. Uh, a, a, A Hebrew slave is not going to last a long time in Egypt, so no doubt they thought the worst of Joseph. And again, I mentioned this last week. Although Joseph was seemingly out of the picture, they could never escape the guilt and the regret that overcame them for what they did to Joseph. Remember verse number 21, I told you to put these two words, guilty conscience. The guilt overcame them. They had a guilty conscience. We talked about it and we mentioned what God has set in place to try to gain their attention. God wanted them to be used. He had a big plan for the brothers of Joseph, and he had great plans for them, but he needed them to get it. Here it is, what we said last week. They needed to come to the end of themselves in order for them to be used how God wanted to use them. And so God puts forth this plan, and he puts forth another test, or series of tests, rather, in the lives of Jacob's, or excuse me, yes, Jacob's sons, and so we know he sent this famine along. And uh, while the brothers caught their first glimpse of the famine, uh, famine, we learned just a few weeks ago that Joseph was already working behind the scenes to make provisions for all those in the land of Egypt through the storehouses. Remember in the seven plenteous years, he sets away the provisions for the seven years of famine. And so this news of the widespread provision makes its way back to Jacob and the 12, or rather the 11 sons of, of Jacob. And so he gets wind and he gives them the instructions. He says, guys, remember, get your hands out of your pockets. What are you looking at? I want you to go to Egypt and I want you to get the provisions for the, the seven years of famine. And so they make this journey to, I know I'm repeating myself, but they make this journey to Egypt and who sees and recognizes them? Joseph, right? The Bible says that he sees them and he knows who they are. He recognizes them. So again, Joseph puts on this show and doesn't reveal himself to his brothers and he makes these accusations against his brothers and he calls them what? He calls them spies. He says, you are spies in the land. You've come to spy out uh, those who are in Egypt. And so as the sons of Jacob are in prison, again, he, he gets frustrated, throws them into prison, quite possibly the same prison that Joseph resided in for two full years. But nonetheless, they're there in prison and they're talking with one another in their Hebrew tongue. Joseph understands every word they say. Again, Joseph, although he's been in Egypt for a long time, he knows that tongue. He knows what they're talking about, and they begin to discuss. And what do they say? They say, it is because of what we did to Joseph that now we are in this position that we are in. So Joseph heard them, and so they begin to explain their situation to Joseph, and they reference Joseph himself in their story, but not by name. Did you notice that last week? They didn't didn't name Joseph. What do they say? The youngest this day is with our father. That's Benjamin. Then Then they say this, and one is not. One is not. Jacob couldn't stop talking about Joseph. 
Jacob, from the moment that Joseph was born, even when Joseph has, has in his mind, been killed by this, devoured by this beast, Jacob still can't start, stop talking about Joseph, yet his brothers don't even have the courage to even mention his name. And remember, they don't know that this is Joseph, so what would he know? They could have mentioned Joseph by name, but they are so ashamed. They have such a guilty conscience, they, they can't even mention Joseph by name. So Joseph instructs the nine other brothers, or excuse me, the nine other sons, rather, of Jacob to return to Canaan and to bring back uh, this younger brother, Benjamin. Remember, he wants proof. And so they send them back, and he wants them to bring them back in exchange for Simeon. And that's where we pick up in verse number 29 in our passage. They explain all the happenings of what took place while they were there in Egypt. And they're explaining this all to Jacob, and they open up their sacks, and they realize that all of their money has been restored. All of their money, rather, is in all of their sacks. At first, it was just one. He says, oh my goodness, look at this, brothers. We've got our money. My money's right here. But then they get back to Canaan, and as they're explaining what happened, they open up their sacks and realize everybody's money is back in their sack. And you got to understand the fear. The Bible says that they were afraid. They became fearful. They were afraid because, no doubt, this looks really bad. They don't know yet that Joseph is the one who had his ruler put it into their sacks. At this point, they're thinking we've been set up and Joseph is, or excuse me, the ruler of the land rather, that's what they reference him as in our text. Surely he's gonna be upset. Surely he's gonna find out about what happened and he's gonna send somebody along to come and either kill us, put us in prison, uh, but we're all going to jail for sure because of what it's, what it's per- uh, perceived as what we've done to this ruler of Egypt. And then after a few moments of panic, the realization came over them, and it was this. We've got to go back. We've got to go back. If we don't go back, again, Joseph's going to send someone. Maybe even Joseph will come himself. We've got to go back. Very simply tonight, I'd like to give you just a couple of things, six things. Can we do that? Six things that I'd like to give you in light of our passage in Genesis 42 and Genesis chapter number 43. If you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. Number one, I want you to notice Jacob's response. Jacob's response. Knowing what we've learned about Jacob and his relationship with these ten sons, can you imagine with me the overwhelming feeling of rage and frustration when you sent ten brothers into the land of Egypt and nine come back? Can you put your, I mean, already they've lost Joseph and he wouldn't even let them, allow them to take Benjamin into the land of, of, of Egypt and now they're coming back and there's one less son. Hey dad, uh, you know how we had twelve sons? And uh, Joseph, well, whatever happened to him, happened to him. And then you wouldn't even give us Benjamin. And uh, so we went into Egypt. And how do you feel about Simeon? (laughs) You weren't too attached to him, were you? (laughs) Look what Joseph, or rather Jacob, says in verse number 38. They tell him about what happened. Obviously, he sees that Simeon's missing. And they say, hey, Dad, we've got to go back. Jacob, or rather the ruler of this land, told us that we're liars, that we're spies, and we have to bring back Benjamin. If we don't bring back Benjamin, they're going to kill Simeon. And maybe they'll kill us all. I don't know. But we've got to bring Benjamin back. Here's his response. And he said, my son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, that is Joseph, and he is left alone, that is Simeon. If mischief befall him by the way in which he go... Uh, the way in which ye go, then shall ye bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to the grave. In other words, Father, help me out. Over my dead body, over my dead, not happening. You really think that I'm going to allow my precious little baby Benji to go with you back to Egypt? You can't even take care of Joseph, let alone Simeon. I'm not going to send you my youngest son along the way with you. By the way, I feel really bad for Simeon. 
Don't you? I mean, I kind of feel bad for Simeon. How many of you are a middle child? How many of you are the youngest child? How many of you know you're the youngest child and you're the favorite? How many of you parents would admit that your youngest is the favorite? No, I'm just kidding. I kind of feel bad for Simeon. So again, Simeon gets left and, and they say, he says, no way, There's, this is not going to happen. Basically, write it off. In two verses previous, he says, he's basically dead. He's basically gone. And so that's the response of Jacob. Look at number two, Judah's responsibility. Jacob's response, number two, Judah's responsibility. We won't read the first five verses, or rather the first seven verses, but the Bible says that the famine was sore in the land. But it's actually not talking about the initial response to the famine, but rather now they've been in Egypt, for, or rather they've been back in Canaan for a while, and so it says that the famine is still sore, there's still a major famine at hand. And so Joseph uh, gives them these provisions, and now they've exhausted the provisions that Joseph has given them, so now they're back to the drawing board. Now we are without food. Now we've still got family problems. We talked about that last week. And um, hey, guys, you're going to have to go back. Jacob tells them, hey, you're going to have to go back. You're going to have to get provisions for the rest of this famine. One problem, Dad. Remember, we can't go back. If we go back, we're goner. We're dead man standing. We have to take Benjamin. And at the end of Genesis chapter number 42, we see the nine other brothers making the appeal to Jacob and asking him to allow them to take Benjamin back to Egypt. And Joseph, or rather Jacob, is not going to have it. And amid the pleading, who speaks up yet again? Reuben. <laughs> Reuben. Look at verse number 37. At the end of Genesis chapter number 42, verse number 37, or uh, yeah, 42 and verse number 37, it says, And Reuben spake unto his father, saying, Slay my two sons. If I, uh, if, I bring not, uh, excuse me, if I bring him not to thee, deliver him unto my hand, and I will bring him to thee again. I'm really getting tired of Reuben constantly interjecting at the inappropriate places. I kind of feel like Reuben is kind of like the Old Testament Peter. Always has something to say, but it's always at the wrong time. And it's always the wrong thing to say. Dad, uh, you can trust me. I'm the oldest son. Matter of fact, I guarantee you, I'm going to take Benjamin. You can take my two sons. And if I don't bring Benjamin back, you can kill my two sons. How noble. How noble. You can kill my two sons if I don't bring your beloved son, Benjamin, back. Matter of fact, mark it down. You can slay them. Don't even worry about it. I know I'm going to bring him back. Isn't it interesting to note that no matter how hard Reuben tried to win the approval of his father, Jacob never trusted him? He never trusted him. In previous chapters, he never trusted him. And, and, and still, we find out he's, he's still not trusting him. And we're going to find out at the end that there's a great reason for that. At the end of Jacob's life, I think in three or four weeks, we're going to talk about this. But Jacob comes to the end of his life, and he's giving out blessings. I mean, he's giving out blessings like it's Oprah. You give a blessing. You get a blessing. You get a blessing. He's giving everybody blessings. But then he comes to Reuben. What does he say? Uh, not for you. No blessing for you. I give you a curse. Why did he do that? He knew about some of the things that Reuben had partaken in. He knew about the activities and the immoral sexual acts that Reuben was taking place in. Matter of fact, Reuben's name means this, unstable as water. Unstable. And although Reuben couldn't gain the, uh, any ground uh, with his father Jacob, Judah steps up. Judah steps up. Now, we learned this a few weeks ago that Judah has a track record of his own, doesn't he? Genesis 38, we talked about that. Judah's got a track record of his own. Matter of fact, I referenced immoral sin. Um, Judah had a baby, or had twins, rather, with his daughter-in-law. And so Judah's got his own history, but the indication of our text is that the Judah in Genesis chapter 42 is not the same Genesis that we read about in Genesis chapter number 38. 
Matter of fact, of the 11, or rather uh, the 10 brothers, uh, excluding Benjamin because he didn't partake in the activities that were performed against Joseph, I would say that the only one who at this point has truly shown signs of repentance is Judah himself. He's matured a little bit. Reuben says, Father, you can trust me. If I don't come back with Benjamin, you can slay my two sons. Benjamin, or rather Judah says this, if I don't come back with Benjamin, you can take my life. I'll bear the shame. Look at verse number 8 of Genesis chapter number uh, 43. And Judah said unto Israel his father, Send the lad with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and thou, and also our little ones. I will be surety for him. Of my hand shalt thou require him. If I bring him not unto thee, and set him before thee, then let me bear the blame forever. Judah took great responsibility. There's a couple of reasons why I'd like you to notice. Letter A, the need was great. The need was great. Again, we understand that uh, they had exhausted all the provisions given by Joseph in the first journey. So therefore, there was this need for the brothers to return to Egypt to replenish the storehouse there in Canaan and make provisions for the second half of this famine. The need was great. Letter B, write this down. The leaders were few. The leaders were few. Although Reuben should have been in the place of leadership, Reuben proved himself unqualified and incapable to lead Benjamin and the, uh, the uh, uh, 11, or rather the 10 other brothers back into the land of Egypt. So the need was great. The leaders were few. Let her see. The solution was singular. The solution was singular. As they persisted to, ner- to, to, to urge Jacob to allow them to take Benjamin back, as the provisions dwindled to nothing... Jacob finally came to the realization that there was no other choice but to let them take Benjamin. There's no more grain. The only place that has provisions is Egypt. And obviously you can't go back without Benjamin. And so he started to understand through the pleading and through uh, Judah interven- intervening and saying, I'll take him. He realizes this is, it's singular. This is what we're going to have to do. It's got to happen. But there's a thing you need to understand about Jacob. Thing, there's a thing that we all understand about Jacob. If there's anybody who knows how to make a deal, it's Jacob. Remember Esau? Look what he says in verse number 11. And their father Israel said unto them, If it must be so, do this. Take of the best fruits in the land in your vessels and carry down the man a present a little balm and a little honey, spices and myrrh, nuts and almonds, and take double money in your hand, and the money that was brought again in the mouth of your sacks, carry it again into your hand, peradventure, it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise, go again unto the man. So now Judah has Benjamin. The text tells us he's got a gift or a few gifts. He's got, the Bible says, Double money, I like that. Extra money, and along with the money that they had already been, uh, uh, that was already in their sacks that they had taken back from Egypt that they realized was in their, stack, their sacks when they first returned back from Egypt. They've got everything that Joseph has asked for and then some. They've got the offering of a lifetime, the peace offering of a lifetime. They want to make an impression, a good impression on Joseph when they return. So that's Jacob's response, Judah's responsibility. Number three, I want you to write this down. Joseph's reunion. Joseph's reunion. Simeon has been sitting in the ward for quite some time now. Again, I kind of feel bad for Simeon. He's been forgotten. Now, the nine other brothers, along with baby brother Benjamin, begin to journey back to Egypt 
for the family reunion of a lifetime. Now, I know I'm kind of making fun. Benjamin is actually not a child at this time. Benjamin is probably about 30. He's probably about 30, maybe even 35, because he's got 10 sons, and it says that there, uh, in, uh, I believe it was verse number 7 and verse number 8, it says that all the children went with them, but nonetheless, the nine sons, or the 10 sons of Joseph, the 11 sons of Joseph, rather, they make their uh, return, the 200-mile journey, back to Egypt. A few things I'd like you to notice of this reunion. Letter A, Joseph shows grace. Joseph shows grace. You say, Lamar, you already said that last week. Joseph shows grace again. Look at verse number 16. And when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the ruler of his house, bring these men home and slay and make ready, for these men shall dine with me at noon. And the man did as Joseph bade, and the men, or excuse me, and the man brought the men unto Joseph's house. So here comes Joseph's brothers, and he sees them coming, and he gives this instruction to his ruler. Hey, I want you to kill the fatted calf. I want you to lay the nice fine china out. We're going to have guests tonight. They're going to be the guests of honor. Excuse me, we're going to bring these brothers into my house and we're going to allow them to dine with me. We're going to show them hospitality. We're going to be kind to them. We're going to show them grace. I want you to wrap your mind around that. I want you to wrap your mind around that. Genesis chapter number 37. Genesis chapter number 37 in verse number 24 it says, And they took him and cast him into a pit, and the pit was empty. There was no water in it. They tell Joseph, or rather they see Joseph coming from afar off. We've, we've hammered this nail in many times over the past week. But they bring Joseph in. They see him coming from afar off. They conspire against Joseph. They throw him into the pit, the Bible says, without water. They maliciously strip him of his coat of many colors. And then what do they do in verse number 25? And they sat down to eat bread. I want you to wrap your mind around this idea. The last time that Joseph had a dinner date with his brothers, he was not the guest of honor. Quite the opposite. And now we fast forward 20, some 23, 24 years later. These same brothers that maliciously threw Joseph into the pit and sold him into slavery are now invited to feast at the table of the one whom they betrayed. What happened? Grace happened. Grace happened. That was not what those brothers deserved. Again, the last time that he supped with his brothers, he was there in the pit, and they were there having a little siesta. But now, 20 years later, Joseph is administering grace, and Joseph brings them into their house. They're treated like uh, guests of honor, and he shows them hospitality. What happened? Grace happened. Joseph shows grace. Let her be right this down. The brothers show guilt. The brothers show guilt. Isn't it funny that a guilty conscience causes us to jump to the worst conclusions? When you've done something wrong and it's, it's come or brought before you, you automatically jump to the worst conclusions. Why? Guilty conscience. How many of you ever were called to the principal's office? James, you're wanted in the principal's office. And what does everybody do? Ooh. <laughs> they jump to the conclusions. Verse number 18. And the men were afraid because they were brought unto Joseph's house. And they said, because of the money that was re, uh, returned in our sacks at the first time we are brought in, that he may seek occasion against us and fall upon us and take us bo uh, for bondmen and our asses. And they came near to the steward of Joseph's house and they communed with him at the door of the house and said, oh, sir, we came indeed down at the first time to buy food and it came to pass when we came to the inn that we opened our sacks and behold, every man's money was in the mouth of his sacks, our money in full weight and we have brought it 
uh, we have brought it again in our hand, and other money have we brought down in our hands to buy food, just in case you won't take our, our provisions that we're bringing back. We brought a little bit of extra, and we cannot tell who put our money in our sacks, verse number 23. And he said, peace be to you, fear not. Your God, capital G, your God and the God of your father hath given your treasures in your sacks. I have your, uh, excuse me, I had your money and he brought Simeon out unto them. Now things are just getting incredibly weird. They're getting very weird. Uh, the, this Egyptian sets the table for the 11 sons of Jacob. They jump to the worst conclusions and they begin to sing like a canary. And the Egyptian says, oh, you mean that money? That was us. Joseph had me put that in your sacks. That was us. Don't worry. Don't be afraid. That was something that we did. Then he brings Simeon out. They begin to sup. And then this Egyptian starts referencing the God of their fathers, capital G. Hold on, what? He starts referencing their God and the God of their father. Starts referencing Jehovah God. If I'm his brothers right now, my fear is turned to confusion. I'm throwing the yellow flag and I'm saying, time out, what is going on? What's happening? This is getting really weird. Joseph shows grace. His brothers show guilt, let her see. Joseph shows grief. Joseph shows grief. In verse 25 through 30, the Bible says that they make their presence and they, and they begin to make this presentation ready to present to Joseph. Look at verse number 26. And when Joseph came home, they brought him the present which was in their hand unto the house, and look at this, and bowed themselves to the earth, excuse me, to him to the earth. Second time, second time, two dreams and two times we have found exactly as Joseph had predicted, exactly as God had given them these, these visions in Genesis chapter number 37, there they are again. What are they doing? Exactly what they said they would never do, bowing before the feet of Joseph. Can I tell you something? When you follow the plan of God, when you walk circumspectly to his will, he won't make your dreams come true. He'll do one better. He'll make his dreams come true in you. The conversation takes a very weird turn. Verse number 27. And he asked them of their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spake? Is he yet alive? Hey guys, how's your dad? You told me about your dad before. How's he doing? Text says, old man. So it's not disrespectful. I can call you an old man because Joseph did. He says, how's your old man? How, how, how's your father doing? Here's their response in verse number 28. And they answered, thy servant our father is in good health. He is yet alive. And they bowed down their heads and made obeisance. Yeah, he's doing okay. He's doing pretty well. He's got his health. He's still alive. Look at verse number 29. And he, that is Joseph, and he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, is this your younger brother of whom you spake unto me? And he said, God be gracious unto thee, my son. Then I want you to see what Joseph does in verse number 30. And Joseph made haste. That means he hurried up. Joseph made haste, for his bowels did yearn upon his brother, and he sought where to weep, and he entered into his chamber and wept there. Once again, we find Joseph to the point of tears. We talked about this last week. I believe the reason that Joseph was at the point of tears the first time was because he began to hear about his brothers and they complained about the situation they were in. They were, their mind was wrapped around the ramifications of their sin and not the action they performed against Joseph. Joseph was broken, I believe, because of the sins of his brothers. That's why he cried the first time. But this time, very different. I believe this time the reason that Joseph was moved to the point of tears was here. Here it is, because he loved his brothers. Man, he loved them. Bible says that he sees Benjamin. 
I believe he knew Benjamin was his brother. I believe he knew Benjamin even before he left. And here's this younger brother and his, his overwhelming sense of love and affection he felt for Benjamin and no doubt the rest of his brothers. Brings him to the point of tears. So he turns away and he begins to weep. So we see Jacob's response, Judah's responsibility, Joseph's reunion. Number four, write this down. The brother's realization. The brother's realization. Question. At this point in our text, do they know who Joseph is? No. Not yet. They have no idea. Joseph, again, he's been putting on uh, the, the acting, the acting uh, performance of a lifetime. They have no idea that this man is Joseph. Joseph has, again, put on this show. They have no clue that the man that stands before them is, in fact, the brother that was not. But then Joseph gives them a clue. Look at verse number 31. I want you to see this. And he washed his face and went out and refrained himself and said, set on bread. And they sat on, uh, excuse me, and they set on for him by, uh, by himself and for them by themselves and for the Egyptians which did eat with him by themselves because the Egyptians might not eat bread with the Hebrews for that is an abomination unto the Egyptians. Look at verse number 33. Here's what Joseph does. And they sat before him the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his birthright. What are the response of the brothers? And the men marveled one at another. Joseph washes his face and he comes back to dinner. And then Joseph sets the brothers from oldest to youngest. And what does the Bible say? They marvel. The first inkling, who is this guy? Did, did you tell him? I mean, he knows Benjamin's the youngest, but did you, Reuben, did you mention to him that I'm the older? I mean, how did he know how to sit us in order according to his birthright? How did he know from oldest to youngest the order in which we've been born? Did you tell him? I didn't tell him. Did you tell him? So nonetheless, he sits them in order. Look what he does in verse number 34. This is subtle, but I want you to see it. Verse number 34. And he took and sent messes. That's a lot. He sent messes unto them uh, from before him. But Benjamin's mess was five times so much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. So he puts on this feast and he's portioning out. The servant goes out and he gives Simeon a little bit and he gives Manasseh a little bit. And he gives Reuben a little bit. Then they get to Benjamin and it says that he adds five times as much as he, adds, uh, he gives the other brothers. Why? Not because he's a teenager and eats more than anybody else. He gives five times the amount to Benjamin as he does his other brothers. Why did he do that? We're going to talk about this a little bit more in detail next week. But I believe that this was a subtle test that Joseph was playing on behalf of his brothers Genesis chapter number 37, the Bible says they hate him. They hated him yet the more. They hated him yet even the more. What, we, we talked about it. It's the calloused heart, but it, it boils down to a word that starts with the letter J. Jealousy. Jealousy. Some of you are saying, are you kidding me? Another test? Another test? God's going to give them another opportunity, another test. How long is it going to take for these brothers to actually get the picture? As long as it takes. Long as it takes. Hey, we've been on this road for 20 years. They have as long as they're willing to take. God is willing to take this as far as they're willing to take it in order for them to get the picture. Sometimes we want God to work quickly, but let me tell you, God desires to work thoroughly. Sometimes we want God to make this pain go away, but the reason that this pain has not gone away is because we have not gotten the picture. God desires far greater to work thoroughly rather than to work quickly. Remember last week we talked about it. There's a difference between regret and repentance. 
There is a difference between regret and repentance. Joseph didn't just want to deal with the fruit of the issue. He wanted to deal with the root of the issue. God was working in the lives of these brothers, and it didn't matter how long it took them. It didn't matter how far they needed to go. Remember, God is sovereign. He's going to have his way. God was willing to take it as far as needed in order for them to get it. We see Jacob's response, Judah's responsibility, Joseph's reunion, the brother's realization, and lastly, I know I said six, I meant five. You're excited now. Number five, the the truth we can reap. I want you to see this, the truth we can reap. Just a few applications really quick that I'd like to make out of this passage. And what we can learn from this this, uh, program that God has set in the life of Joseph's brothers. Letter A, I want you to write this down. The place of reverence in God's program. The place of reverence in God's program. Did anybody take notice of how many times it says in Genesis 42 and Genesis chapter number 43, either they feared Joseph or were afraid of Joseph? Did anybody recognize that? If you're wondering, it was a lot. They feared Joseph when they got to Egypt the first time. They feared Joseph when he accused them of being spies. They feared Joseph when he threw them into the prison. They feared Joseph when they realized they had their money in their sacks. They feared Joseph when they returned to Egypt. Then they feared Joseph whenever he invites them into their house. I kind of get the inkling and the feeling that Joseph's brothers had a very healthy fear of this man that sat before them. They were afraid. They had a healthy dose of fear for this man. Do you think for a moment that they questioned whether or not Joseph was legitimate? Do you think they questioned for a moment that this man that was before them had great authority? Do you think for a moment that they questioned, oh no, he's, surely he's bluffing. No way. They had a healthy dose of fear for this man that was set before him. Reverence. Reverence. How many of you uh, that were able to grow up in a, uh, with a strong dominating father figure ever had the guts to tell your father to take a hike? Not me. How many of you ever did that and lived to tell about it? You know my dad, some of you have met him. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see him tomorrow, this time tomorrow. I'm real excited. Right, actually, right about now, I will be pulling into to Houston, and they'll be picking me up. But I, I can tell you, one thing I've learned, I was raised in a Christian home, but more than that, I was raised in a Baptist home. Even more than that, I was raised in a Baptist preacher's home. And never once did I ever, ever, ever have the audacity to tell my father to take a hike. He said, jump. I said, how high? He said, go here. I said, okay, how long? And whatever you say, I will do. Matter of fact, I'm 26 years old, and tomorrow if my dad were to walk up to me and he said, son, drop and give me 20. I can't even do 20 push-ups, but I'll try, dad. Whatever you want. Whatever you want, I will do. <laughs> even at 26 years old, I am under the authority of my father. I'm scared to death of him. It's a healthy fear. Those of you who had dominate, uh, a dominant godly father figure, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Why is that? He's in charge. Why is that? He's the one who has the authority. More than that, he has the capability to administer discipline when I don't subject to his will. And I know this for sure, he ain't bluffing. When he says to do, I better do. You know what the Bible says in 1 John chapter 3 and verse number 1? We know the verse. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. In God's program, he sets himself at the pinnacle of authority, and he sets us at the baseline of dependence. Did you hear me? In God's program, he has set himself at the pinnacle, at the height of authority, and he has set us at the baseline of dependence. 
But so often, so often we have the audacity to question his authority. So often we have the audacity to wonder whether or not he's going to be true to his word when he says, this is the way, walk ye in it. We question his authority, we question his power, we question his legitimacy, and then we act completely surprised when the authority figure in our life, God the Father, has to put us in our place, has to humble us. Again, he does that through trials, through difficulties, through tribulations. We learned last week through his goodness. He's willing to do whatever is necessary to gain our attention and get us back on track. Brings Brings us to a place of reverence. Letter B, I want you to write this down. The priority of repentance in God's program. The place of reverence in God's program, yes, but the priority of repentance in God's program. It's not optional. What did I say? Priority. Here it is. God is not willing to just let this go. Again, we are going to see, God is going to use whatever means necessary to gain the attention of Jacob's sons and to get them to the point of not regret, repentance. Can I tell you something? In the life of a Christian, repentance is a priority. God's not going to just let this thing go. The area of sin in which you find yourself in, maybe you've been in there a long time, maybe it's even been years. God's not just going to turn the other way. He's not going to just turn a blind eye to sin. He has to deal with it because he's holy. He's not going to just let it go. You'll never get a pass when it comes to sin in your life. Hebrews chapter number 12, verse number 6. We know this verse. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. When I hear that verse, you know who I think of? Jonah. Jonah. Uh, the Lord's been working on my heart, and maybe the Lord will allow me to develop a lesson series, a little mini-series on the, on the uh, book of Jonah. But Jonah... God did a lot to get his attention, didn't he? We all think of the whale, but God did a lot more than just the whale to try to gain Jonah's attention. Matter of fact, Jonah, God reveals himself to Jonah and he gives him these instructions. That's his word. Joseph flees and goes the opposite direction of the instructions of God. And rather going to Nineveh, he goes to Tarshish, gets on a ship, and God sends the second W, wind. There you go, Miss Connie. Alliterated. Then we all know God sends the whale. Jonah still didn't get it. He goes and he takes part in one of the greatest revivals ever recorded in scripture there in Nineveh and he's still not satisfied. He's sitting on a beach. There's a gourd that pops up and what does God send? Lastly, he sends a worm to try to gain Jonah's attention. God is willing to take it as far as Jonah is willing to take it. God is willing to take it as far as the sons of Jacob are willing to take it. At any point, the damage can be done and it can be over if they would just submit, repent, and follow. Can I tell you something, Christian? God's willing to take it as far as you are willing to take it. Repentance is a priority. We see the place of reverence in God's program. The priority of repentance in God's program. Lastly, letter C, write this down. I love this. The possibility of recovery in God's program. The possibility of recovery in God's program. Let me ask you a question. How long has it been since Joseph was thrown into the pit in Genesis 37. 20 years, right? Some commentators say it was even more like 25, maybe even 30 years. I want you to notice that at any point, at any point along this journey, God could have pulled the plug on the patience 
and the instruction and the additional, the additional patience that God had administered, the additional grace that God had administered in the life of these brothers, at any point he could have pulled the plug and said, I've had just about enough. I've given you uh, chance after chance after chance. I'm going to use somebody else, and they could have been deported out of the picture, and God could have used someone else for his will. Can you concur, and can you say, I'm thankful that God did not do that, and God does not always do that in our lives? God is one of the most, uh, he is many things, but if, above everything, in our lives sometimes he's this patient, patient, long-suffering. Matter of fact, we're going to see next week that the brothers of Joseph still didn't get it. They still didn't get it. Next week we're going to talk about the final test in Genesis chapter number 44. God's going to give one final test through Joseph. Joseph is going to give this one final test to see if he can bring them from the point of repentance, or excuse me, from the point of regret to repentance. Can I encourage you and can I warn you all at the same time tonight? I don't know who needs to hear this. I feel like someone needs to hear this. No matter what you've done, no matter how far you've run, recovery is always a possibility in God's program. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how far you've depleted yourself from the will of the Father. Recovery is always a possibility in God's program. You say, oh, no, no, you don't understand. You don't understand the things I've done. You don't understand the things that I, the thoughts that I've had, the activities that I've participated in, the wicked things that I've done. Hey, recovery is always a possibility in God's program. Ask Judah. God doesn't wave his will in front of us like a carrot without ever intending to give it to us. Wouldn't that be mean of God? God never waves his will in front of us. He never waves fellowship in front of us without ever intending for us to come into fellowship with him. He desires that we have fellowship. He desires that we turn from the way that we are going, that's repentance, and turn to the will of him. He desires that he wants that, and he will take it as long, he will administer grace as long as he possibly can. Why? He wants us to have fellowship with him. Here's the warning. Clock's ticking. Did you hear me? Clock's ticking. God's grace has an expiration date. His hand that he's given and he's, his gracious hand and his patient hand, his long-suffering hand that he's administered has a timeline. Don't believe me? Ask the people of Noah. Ask the people of Noah's day. For 120 years, yes, Noah's responsibility was to build the ark, but you know what else he was doing? Preaching the gospel. He was preaching, get in the ark, get in the ark, get in the ark. For 120 years, how many people got on the ark? Just eight. Can I tell you something, Christian? Don't gamble with God's grace. Don't gamble with God's grace. Some of us need to hear that. That recovery is always, it's always a possibility in God's program, but some of us need to hear this. God's grace has an expiration date. You might need to know and understand that you can come back into fellowship with God and the choice is yours, but you know what you don't know? You know what question you can't answer? How long you have before he removes and retracts his grace from your life? In closing, we see that although the sons of Jacob were making progress and had come a long way, God wasn't done with the chastening. Why? They haven't gotten it yet. They haven't gotten it yet. These 10 sons of Jacob, they're those sons that are going to require a little bit more patience and a little bit more admonishment. Let me ask you tonight, what is it going to take for God to gain your attention? What's it going to take? What's it going to take for God to gain your attention? Uh, let me tell you, you don't want to play when it, you don't want to play when it comes to God's long suffering and His chastisement. 
Where are you in the process? God is trying to bring you along and he's trying for, to get you to understand, to bring you to a point of repentance, not just regret, and to turn from your sin and turn to him. I'm not talking about salvation, though. Uh, let me make that admonishment. If you're not saved tonight, you ought to get saved. But those of us who profess the name of Christ, there's gonna come a time when he's gonna throw the clay away. We'll close with the words of James in verse number four of chapter number six, or rather, verse number six of chapter number four. I want you to hear it. But he giveth more grace... Wherefore, he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. And then James gives a 10-step process. Here it is. Number one, verse seven, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Number two, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Verse number eight, draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners. Purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted, mourn, weep. Let your laughter be turned to uh, mourning and your joy to heaviness. Verse number 10, here's the key. Humble yourself. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. What is he gonna do? Then he'll lift you up. Then he'll lift you up. In other words, here's what James is trying to say. Repentance is a priority. Repentance is a priority. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. In two weeks, in Genesis chapter number 45, we're going to see the big reveal as the sons of Jacob hear these words, I am Joseph. I don't want to spoil the fun. I'm excited about that message. Matter of fact, I hope that you'll be with us. Finally, the acting is going to come to an end and Joseph is going to reveal himself with the beautiful words, the beautiful picture that he paints of Jesus Christ. And he says, I am Joseph. I'm the one who's been afflicted. I'm the one who you threw into a pit and sold into slavery. And it's at this point in the life of the brothers of Joseph that they get it and they come to the point of repentance. But I want you to notice why. Because they realized who they were dealing with at this point. Man, they felt bad. They felt guilty. They had a guilty conscience. They felt regret. But the moment that they realized that Joseph was sitting in front of them, that brought them to the point of repentance because they realized who they were dealing with. And can I tell you something tonight? You might feel sorry. You might feel guilty. You might feel bad about your sin. But above everything else, you need to realize that we are coming into the presence of God the Father, God the Son, and that ought to bring us to a point of repentance because we realize that the person we are dealing with is none other than God himself. Verse number 10 again, and we're done. Humble yourselves, there it is, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. Let's stand, we'll have a brief moment of invitation and then we'll go directly into our prayer time. If you'll pray with me, Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd be with us tonight. Thank you so much for giving your word and thank you for giving us this message from your word, Lord. You're long suffering, you're kind, you're patient, you want us to get it. You're willing to take it as far as we're willing to take it, Lord. And at any point, I can think of in my life, at any point when I was running from you, the pain could have stopped if I would have just turned and looked at you and started to walk in fellowship with your will. But Lord, you're not gonna let it go. When it comes to sin in my life, I can speak by firsthand experience, you will not let it go because you are holy and you require us to repent, to turn from our wicked ways and to walk circumspectly with your will. Lord, I pray whoever's here tonight, maybe they need to hear the message that they're not too far gone. Maybe they need to hear the message that your, your program, the possibility of, of recovery is always in your program. Lord, I pray that you'd be with that person. But Lord, the clock's ticking. Your hand of grace, I wish I knew. I wish I knew how long I had when I ran from you. Lord, I wish that those who run from you knew how long they had, but the truth is we don't. At any point, you could retract your hand of grace and administer discipline and take us home. Lord, I pray that whoever needs to hear this tonight would come to the point of repentance in their life and they'd start walking after your will. Lord, I pray that you'd continue to bless us. Lord, thank you so much for this truth. Thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.